Exactly what was it Mikey did for you here? I'm sorry. I didn't catch your name. My name is Foley. Excuse me, Mr. Foley, if I appear a little rude, but this sounds like something for the authorities in Detroit. So, if you'll forgive me, I really must get back to work. Look, all I want to know is what kind of... Gentlemen, would you please show Mr. Foley to the door? Get off, man! Get off! Get off! Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996. You can read all of my written work there. Quipster.net is where to go, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. I also do another podcast very similar to Around the World in 80s Movies, but it's called To the 90s and Beyond, and it covers, obviously, films of the 1990s. But with a little bit of a twist, it also covers newer films that spin-off or their sequels or they somehow tie in to those films of the 1990s in some way. You can find the link to that at my website, quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the second part of this look at cops from other parts of the country that come to the Los Angeles region and they end up taking down a case and they're a little bit tougher than your typical LA cops. Already covered Die Hard in the previous episode, going to go back four years now to this one Beverly Hills Cop from 1984. A huge hit at the time. Eddie Murphy is the star. Judge Reinhold, John Ashton, Lisa Eilbacher, Ronnie Cox, and Stephen Burkhoff fill out the supporting roles. It's an R-rated film. It does have brief nudity, drug content, and language. The runtime is an hour and 45 minutes. The director is Martin Brest, and the screenplay credited to Dan Petrie Jr. Now, the origin of Beverly Hills Cop, it's actually very different depending on who you ask. And when you ask, because these stories tend to change, but the origin, at least according to me, based on the evidence, is that in the mid-1970s, Don Simpson, uh, one of the producers who would eventually make Beverly Hills Cop, among many other big hits of the 1980s, he had relocated to Beverly Hills. He was just kind of starting out there in Hollywood. He took a job developing films for Paramount Pictures. Now, Don Simpson happened to be from a, a very humble origin. He came from Anchorage, Alaska. He was the son of a mechanic out there. And so he felt very out of place residing among the wealthy elite of Beverly Hills. At that time, he was assisting filmmaker Floyd Mutrix in scripting his film that would come out and and be a modest hit called Aloha, Bobby and Rose. After they had completed that, Mutrix did invite Simpson to come out and observe him as he worked on his next project, which was going to be about street gangs in Los Angeles. Mutrix coordinated with the Los Angeles Police Department They were going to bring out three former Mexican mafia members who had just turned into government witnesses. He was going to interview them for research for his upcoming script. Mutrix and Simpson went out to dinner. They met them and their police escorts at this restaurant out in Los Angeles. Now, Simpson, as an observer, he was very struck, not necessarily by the Mexican mafia members, but by these East L.A. cops. They were burly, rough-and-tumble men in T-shirts and jeans, And they were almost indistinguishable from the criminals. The next morning, as Simpson was thinking about this experience, he wondered how one of these cops would fare if they were transferred to the the cushy, 
idyllic environs of the Beverly Hills Police Department. Now, Mutrix's project, it would later be dubbed American Me, it was intended to star Al Pacino, and Hal Ashby was going to direct. It was slated for a 1978 release, although it would be in development hell for a long time. It wouldn't actually get produced until 1992, and that was when James Edward Olmos wrote and directed. Meanwhile, Simpson's idea, this this cop, this tough cop in Beverly Hills, he started talking about it to Paramount President Michael Eisner, and Eisner was enthusiastically endorsing it because Eisner experienced something kind of akin to that himself. He was pulled over at a point in the past by this Hollywood cop who had treated him condescendingly because he was driving this beat-up station wagon with New York plates around the town. The cop's car, by comparison, seemed very clean, very fancy. Its interiors were decked out with computer technology like the latest tech. Eisner was wondering why cops in a city that really didn't have a lot of violent crime needed so much gear. And he also wondered why, you know, what was it like for cops catering to the wealthy who looked at all of them like they were just their personal security guards rather than there to keep the peace? After getting questioned at restaurants and movie studios because he drove an eyesore, Eisner's treatment by this cop was the final straw. He traded in his beat-up station wagon for a brand-new Mercedes the following day. Now, Eisner, with that anecdote, would take credit for having the actual origin of Beverly Hills Cop, and that was something that would really ruffle the feathers of Simpson, because Simpson thought that Eisner was taking credit for his ideas all the time, and he said that Eisner's cop story actually never happened, and his only real experience with the Beverly Hills police came when Eisner's wife called 911 because somebody was on their home's roof, and a slew of cops had surrounded the house within minutes with their guns drawn. Eisner made comments about the irony that the cops really couldn't afford to live in the area that they protected. Sometime later, Eisner did come up with some ideas of things that he wanted to see in Simpsons' movie. He provided about three pages of notes, but none of those notes were ever used, which is why Simpson argues that Eisner really is taking credit for something he should get no credit for. Simpson's later producing partner, Jerry Bruckheimer, called Eisner's idea at the time like Raiders of the Lost Ark in Beverly Hills. Eisner did, though, use a lot of those ideas when he was a bigwig at Disney for 1986's Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Getting back to the origin, now Simpson was imagining his main character named Buddo, this rough-hewn, half-Chicano cop. He would be covered with tattoos. The idea was that he would be like a bull in a china shop in Beverly Hills, this kick-ass cop in the pristine crystal palace of the Immaculate City. Simpson imagined a thriller perhaps akin to Dirty Harry, You would have this loose cannon cop that unleashes startling violence when he's taking down the criminals. Plot elements would appear. It would be kind of a mix of shampoo and Chinatown. Now, in 1977, Simpson and Eisner did meet with then-hot screenwriter Danilo Bach, and they brought him their premise. Bach took the premise. He didn't know what to do with it because they only had this one idea of a tough cop in Beverly Hills. He returned two weeks later with his own idea. Now, it was suggested to him by Eisner that the vehicle could star somebody like Clint Eastwood or Al Pacino or James Caan, so he ignored the Chicano cop from East L.A. angle because he didn't feel that those stars represented that. So instead, his tough cop was somebody who would patrol the slums of an East Coast working-class city, 
before he came to Beverly Hills to solve a murder and then take down the culprit, the culprit being a wealthy person of influence in the city, running this underground criminal operation. Upon hearing this, Eisner leapt with excitement. Bach soon received a contract that would detail the story premise that Eisner and Simpson wanted, along with its title called The Beverly Hills Cop. They still wanted their cop to be from the barrios of gangland Los Angeles, though, where drug trafficking and shootouts were much more common than any place else, really, in the country. And that cop would get transferred to the suburbs of Beverly Hills and join the PD for a particular case. Now, this maverick cop quickly grows sick of being among all of these pampered police officers who defer to the wealthy and powerful people that they serve. As for whatever the case would be about or how the tough cop would ultimately triumph, that was really for Bach to decide when he came up with his full script. Now, as he started writing his full script, Bach didn't fully adhere to the contract instructions. In fact, he thought a lot of it didn't work for him. So he stuck with his idea of an East Coast cop, not the East L.A. cop. And he chose the title, not even the Beverly Hills cop. He changed the title to Beverly Drive. His story begins in Pittsburgh with the murder of a thief named Leon Schechter. Schechter happens to be the friend of a tough Pittsburgh cop called Ellie Axel. Axel tracks down the clues of Schechter's murder to this wealthy Beverly Hills resident named Dalglish. Now, while under the strict supervision of a Beverly Hills Police Department captain named Bogomil, Axel connects with this distressed woman in Dalglish's employ called Jolie. The climax would involve a shootout at Dalglish's mansion estate, with Axel taking the magnate down, earning the respect, eventually, of Bogomil and all of the rest of the Beverly Hills Police Department for having the guts to do what they couldn't, which is hold the well-connected to the law. Paramount praised Bach's satirical skewing of Beverly Hills privilege, wealth, and status, even if these executives, ironically, were also being lampooned in the process. They loved it. Bach performed additional revisions, followed by more from additional writers, including Vincent Patrick, when the project continued to languish. By 1982, though, Simpson was ousted from his perch in Paramount because he had drug abuse issues. So he determined to join forces with another producer called Jerry Bruckheimer to form this independent production team. And they soon entered into a three-year exclusivity deal to develop and produce movies and TV shows with Paramount. The project still needed Paramount's approval, but the studio did give these producers wide latitude on the talent that they would hire both on screen and behind the camera. Strong test scores for another Bruckheimer and Simpson production called Flashdance gave Simpson the clout that he needed to push for his Beverly Hills Cop project again. After Bill Whitliff performed a revision on Beverly Hills Cop that Paramount wasn't as keen on, Paramount suggested pursuing Dan Petrie Jr. because his popular script called Windy City, which would later become The Big Easy, it had just sold in town, so he was a hot screenwriter ready to take on another project, and Petrie seemed kind of the perfect choice. So Petrie worked from a small office, his small office in Beverly Hills, and he had a lot of personal experience as somebody with no money who was in this town full of rich elites. In fact, a lot of Beverly Hills really amused Petrie as he observed them. He kept his window open and he would see the most ridiculous things all around the city, the most hideous art on display in all of the art galleries, absurd clothing that they had for sale. Some of, this, some of these things actually worn by the inhabitants of Beverly Hills 
the crazy things that they would sell in the boutiques at prices so outrageous, he wondered actually who was buying them. Now, to an outsider, Beverly Hills screamed out comedy. So Petrie, he wanted to put in lots of this, this class culture humor into his script, and he began turning this very gritty thriller into an all-out action comedy. Paramount actually loved Petrie's proposed changes to add a lot of comedic flair to the piece, especially because comedies happen to be cheaper than action flicks to produce because a lot more screen time went to dialogue over big stunts or elaborate set pieces. In discussing potential stars for this new script, Simpson spotted Mickey Rourke's picture while he was flipping through a magazine, and he felt that Mickey Rourke would actually be perfect to play the cop. Petrie's script wasn't really ready at the time that Simpson approached Rourke, so he just, over lunch, pitched the general idea to Rourke. But Rourke was still on board, and Rourke ended up signing this $400,000 holding contract to keep him in place as Petrie began shaping the script with Rourke in mind. Now, Simpson and Bruckheimer did ask for one particular change. They had just done a film in Pittsburgh, Flashdance, so they wanted to change the location so they didn't have to do another film set there. They, they changed it actually to Detroit, where Bruckheimer was actually from. Petrie also made some additional changes. He switched the name of the protagonist from Ellie Axel from Pittsburgh to Axel Ellie. He felt that Axel sounded much more like a, a tough guy name than Ellie. So he basically just reversed the first and last names. Schechter, the murdered thief, was now Axel's childhood friend working as a security guard at this posh Beverly Hills art studio. Jolie became Jeanette, Schechter's sister. And the wealthy baddie is now this art dealer named Fleming, who kills Schechter for stealing this bronze Degas statue from him. Now, while Paramount loved the premise, the script, they felt, still needed additional work. These further delays did result in Rourke's holding contract eventually expiring, and that left him free to do another film that he wanted to do called The Pope of Greenwich Village instead, coincidentally written by one of the uncredited screenwriters who worked on an earlier draft of Beverly Hills Cop, Vincent Patrick. Meanwhile, in 1983 or so, uh, Sylvester Stallone had just signed a pay-or-play contract with Paramount to co-star in a film with Eddie Murphy, about mercenary soldiers. It was called 50-50, but the script had a lot of problems and it was consistently getting reworked. Eventually, they decided to turn mercenary soldiers into CIA operatives, and Stallone, at a certain point, lost interest in it. And Stallone leaving soured Michael Eisner on the project altogether, and it was eventually shelved, although it would later get made in 1992 with a lot lesser stars, Peter Weller and Robert Hayes. Now, Simpson and Bruckheimer were ecstatic that uh, Eddie Murphy was now being released and he was free because they wanted to get Eddie Murphy to star in Beverly Hills Cop. Paramount, though, insisted on luring Stallone because they wanted to avoid paying him the millions of dollars for this pay-or-play contract that they had to appear in nothing for them. So, And they also had a lot of other ideas in mind for Murphy to star in. Now, Stallone did check out the script. He didn't know why he was being offered like a comedy, but he did end up accepting it as uh, an, an acceptable replacement for 50-50. Now, because the script's opening featured the smuggling bust with dialogue that was patterned after a scene in the Martin Scorsese film called Mean Streets, Eisner and Katzenberg decided that they would offer Martin Scorsese 
with whom they had a really good relationship, the chance to direct it. Scorsese happened to be kind of in a, in a weird position in his career at the time. He was hoping to bounce back from the commercial failure of The King of Comedy, but as he read the scripts that he was being offered by Eisner and Kanzenberg, he was bewildered by these formula films. He didn't know exactly why they wanted him to do them. For instance, in Beverly Hills Cop, he needed an explanation of what the appeal was of the film to them. Eventually, he dismissed it as a retread of Don Siegel's Coogan's Bluff, something he was not interested in redoing. Scorsese, at, during this period, also declined their offer for the crime drama called Witness for very similar reasons. And he flat out refused other things they offered, like The Golden Child and the never made Flashdance 2, if you can imagine Martin Scorsese doing a sequel to Flashdance. Even more incredulous, a favorite of Simpson and Bruckheimer, a favorite director, David Cronenberg, was also offered the chance to direct Beverly Hills Cop. He turned it down, as he did their offer previously of Flashdance, and also he turned down Top Gun later. I can't imagine David Cronenberg doing any of those films. British director Ferdinand Fairfax, he was offered the chance to direct, but eventually he turned it down because he felt he really was not a good fit for the material. So Simpson and Bruckheimer decided to pursue Martin Brest because Brest was freely available just recently because he had just been fired from War Games. Brest, he was not interested. He declined it actually several times because he felt that after just getting fired from a pretty big project, he felt that if he did something and it was a failure, it could actually be his last. He wanted to stay somewhat, at least in demand, in Hollywood. So his next effort had to be brilliant. And Beverly Hills Cop did not seem like some sort of guaranteed hit. It did have some promise, he admitted, but major changes he felt needed to be made, and there really wasn't enough time before it was set to get into production. But Simpson and Bruckheimer were tenacious in pursuing Brest because Brest was a smart and funny guy, and probably the best that they were going to be able to get on short order. Brest started taking his phone off the hook. Eventually, Simpson actually took that as a sign, and he stopped bothering him. But Jerry Bruckheimer was somebody who would not take no for an answer, and he would not relent. He would call him on the phone, and he would try to keep him on the phone to try to wear him down. And during one lengthy conversation, Brest secretly decided to flip a coin. If it was heads, he would take it. If it was tails, he wouldn't. It was heads, and the rest was history. Now, many supporting actors were cast when Stallone was still attached. Judge Reinhold, he was recommended by Amy Heckerling, who had directed him in Fast Times at Richmond High. She was asked if she knew any straight-laced actors that could play kind of like that role of, of a Beverly Hills police detective. Reinhold was interested in pursuing it because the Rosewood character he was being offered, he has fantasies of becoming uh, like a cop that you would find in the movies, like a super cop. John Ashton used his experience serving cops as a South Central LA bartender to play Taggart, his partner. They actually were hired because Brest was cycling through a lot of the uh, the candidates. He had a lot of people who, who were auditioning for the role, and he was matching a lot of the uh, candidates with different partners, and he was trying to find partners that had the right comic chemistry. Reinhold and Ashton happened to strike a perfect match, Breastfeld, during their riffing, exuding this vibe as longtime partners with this dynamic that they had like a married couple. While improvising under the direction of Breast, who told them to actually uh, pretend that they were a married couple, but also partners as cops, Reinhold flipped open this magazine that he was using while he was waiting 
for his chance to audition, and he read from this article about how red meat affects the bowels to men 50 and over. That eventually was so funny to Brust that he ended up putting that exchange in the film. Taggart and Rosewood would eventually prove so popular with Brust, he viewed them as some sort of reincarnation of Laurel and Hardy or maybe Ralph Cramden and Ed Norton from TV's The Honeymooners, that he wanted their roles greatly expanded and a scene where Taggart asks Bogomil for a new partner was removed. The script, which featured a lot of shootouts in Beverly Hills, though, didn't seem especially funny as Stallone continued to read it. So he began to perform unsolicited script revisions. He felt that his fast-talking character really didn't work well for his style, that especially that his fans had gotten used to. And as he adapted uh, something that he felt would work better for him, he started removing a lot of the comedy bits that were in the script, and he started adding a lot more violent action in its place. Stallone devised this very massive opening that he would later compare to the opening of uh, Saving Private Ryan. It had a huge body count, a lot of explosions and gun violence. He also devised this high-octane finale where his character, Axel, plays chicken in a stolen Lamborghini with a speeding freight train controlled by the villain. He didn't really like the name Axel Ellie either. He actually changed the protagonist's name to Frank Cabretti so he could call him the Cobra. Paramount was opposed to Stallone's revision when he ultimately offered it to them. First, because it was going to force major production delays. They were not set up for all of these elaborate set pieces, and they were not set up for a film that was not a comedy. They were actually hiring people that were that had comedic chops. In addition to that, the proposed changes by Stallone were going to raise the budget by $3 million. Simpson appeased Stallone. He called Stallone's revision amazing, but... Paramount was sold on making a fish-out-of-water, class-driven comedy. That's what had already been approved after many years in development. They did not want to do an ultra-violent blood-revenge actioner. Stallone, though, insisted that his script was perfect for him. He didn't think he could pull off this parody of his own image as it was written in Beverly Hills Cop. His version is what his audience, he knows, would rather see. Stallone continued trying to accommodate Paramount. He continued revising. He intended to to compromise. His character would actually become Axel Cabretti during this second revision. But the estimated budget still continued to climb, likely past $20 million for this intended $13 million picture. Petrie was asked to, to come in to revise Stallone's revision, trying to appease him, replacing the costly climax with a shootout in the Neiman Marcus store in Beverly Hills, But Petrie's take also failed to satisfy Stallone, so Paramount hired screenwriter Chip Prozer to come in and try to balance Stallone's desires with Paramount's, but he also suffered a similar fate to Petrie in that Stallone really didn't like it either. Finding themselves at an impasse, Paramount decided they needed to draw a line because production was set to come. Either Stallone had to go with the approved Petrie script as it had been before he started revising, Or they offered him a way out. He could amicably depart. He could take all of his new script ideas with him to try to make that into a different movie elsewhere. As long as his film was not about a tough cop coming to Beverly Hills, he can do what he will with it. Stallone decided, well, that was a decent deal. He could waive his pay-or-play fee for the story rights for the film he really wanted to do, and he ended up leaving the project in April of 1984, citing creative differences. 
Stallone did end up writing all of these new ideas into a new script he would call Motor City Cobra, which was retitled later when it became his 1986 action film called Cobra. Stallone's departure did leave a big hole at the center of Beverly Hills Cop, but sensing things that might be falling apart before the impasse, Simpson had wisely been keeping in touch with Eddie Murphy for about a month on the possibility of him eventually taking the role if it didn't work out with Stallone. Paramount execs were concerned, though, of Simpson's idea for Murphy still because Murphy had only been a second banana in his prior films, 48 Hours and Trading Places, and they weren't 100% sold that Murphy could carry a vehicle on his own, especially an action vehicle. They decided to make a few offers to other talent that happened to be in play. Harrison Ford declined. He didn't want to play a tough cop. Brest, though, ended up backing up Simpson. Brest went out and he watched 48 Hours, and he thought that Murphy's instincts, especially in the bar scene in 48 Hours, where Murphy pretends to be a cop, was proof enough that he could handle a tough action film. Brest showed Paramount exec snippets from his videotape of 48 Hours, and he told them Beverly's cop could be that scene, but expanded into a whole movie, and Murphy could use his wit and all of his street smarts to get him in and out of places where he didn't belong and out of trouble whenever he was caught. Simpson further argued that Murphy was working better than Harrison Ford or, or John Travolta, which was another uh, person that, they, that Paramount suggested, because Murphy was black. He was a black man in Beverly Hills, and that further accentuated the fish-out-of-water appeal of him being there. And besides, 48 Hours proved that Murphy was talented enough to spin his own dialogue in a way that was even funnier than scripted because a lot of 48 Hours happened to be improvised, especially by Murphy. Now, Murphy was no stranger to taking roles that were meant for others. He replaced Richard Pryor twice, actually, for both 48 Hours as well as Trading Places. And Murphy loved the Beverly Hills Cop concept. He was chagrined that it actually wasn't offered sooner. So they sent Murphy Petrie's pre-Stallone script and then flew to New York to discuss it further with him, enticing him with his $4.2 million guaranteed salary plus a $15 million five-picture acting and co-producing deal with Paramount. Murphy'd answer when he received this offer, enough of this, are we going to make this movie or not? After a month's postponement for Petrie to adjust his script, specifically with Murphy in mind, including changing the character's name again, this time to Foley, Axel Foley, and that would be kind of an homage to Emile Foley, which was Louis Gossett Jr.'s character in uh, An Officer and a Gentleman, which was also produced by Don Simpson. Revisions continued to change daily, using this variety of additional writers, including Sam Simon and Ken Esten, during the production as well as into post-production. Brest, because of the talent, the improvisational talent that he had pulled on board, including Murphy, viewed his script more like a fluid entity, and he firmly believed that Eddie Murphy was a comic genius who could take any scene and make it even funnier through his own personal spin and improvisation. When stuck on how to proceed, Brest would regularly ask Murphy if he had any ideas in mind. Murphy would close his eyes for a few seconds and he would brainstorm the perfect solution almost every time. Brest compared the set environment of Beverly Hills Cop to Your Show of Shows, the TV show. Every scripted scene was a comic scenario for them to improvise through. The writers, though, did struggle to update the scripted dialogue that Murphy improvised on the fly because they had to redo the script every time that Murphy made a change. Eventually, they hired a stenographer to capture 
all of the changes that were going on during the ad-libbing and the improvisation being done with each take, Brest decided for every scene he was going to run several takes, even if it was perfect. And he even printed the ones that were flubs. Dialogue was changing with each take, so the editors needed all of that footage to try to narrow everything down and maintain cohesion. And so it they benefited from having all of the additional footage if they were in a jam. Now, the script did not mention specifically Axel's race was black. Murphy actually incorporated a couple of times through his improvisation. The only stipulation that they wanted changed for the Axel Foley character was that Axel should look young and athletic. Murphy did reject this initially stylized wardrobe that they had for him. He thought it was too slick. Nobody, no cop from Detroit would actually wear something like that. Instead, Axel is seen wearing a sweater and a t-shirt and jeans and, you know, he wears a t-shirt that says Mumford Physical Ed Department because the producers, when they were touring locations with real-life Detroit detectives, happened by the uh, Samuel C. Mumford High School. That happened to be Jerry Bruckheimer's alma mater, and they decided that would be the t-shirt that Axel Foley would wear. At lunch one day, Brest spotted a rusty blue Chevy Nova, and he thought, well, that's actually perfect. That would be what Axel would drive. So they pursued the owner of the car. The car refused to sell his Chevy Nova. So they decided to find another Chevy Nova and rough it up to look kind of like the, uh, the Chevy Nova that they saw. And that would be Axel's car. Detroit homicide detective Gilbert Hill, a real-life detective, he plays Axel's police captain in Detroit in Beverly Hills Cop. Murphy adopted a lot of things from Hill's habits. He especially tucking in his gun in the back of his pants, among other things. A lot of flourishes came from Hill's demeanor. Hill also greatly assisted the writing of some of the scenes, some of the dialogue changes he asked be made, because he told the producers that some of the dialogue that they had in the film was not anything that any cops that he knew would say or do. So he offered a lot of advice that they ended up using in the film. Murphy left a lot of these tasks to the producers. He often didn't leave his trailer until the last second when shooting because he felt that with his talent, he actually believed in his talent, that he could improvise through any scene without doing any preparation. In fact, he thought it would be better than having to rehearse anything because he felt very energized when he was asked to experiment. Having to practice lines or repeat takes drained his performance, and he felt that it was better for him to just go in fresh and do what he will on the spot. Stephen Burkhoff, the main heavy in the film, he was selected when Brest saw this newspaper picture of him uh, performing in theater. Brest specifically liked his very intense gaze that he saw in the picture, and he also admired his villainous turn in the James Bond flick called Octopussy. Burkhoff, realizing he was in the comedy, tried to play things up, especially riff with Murphy, but he was constantly told by Brest to try to downplay his performance because his character, Victor Maitland, He's somebody who has total power and total control. He's not worried by Foley. Foley would not ruffle his feathers at all. So Burkhoff's riffs, whenever he did riff with Murphy, were edited out to keep his character on the side of menacing. Bronson Pinchot very famously kind of had a breakthrough, very small role in Beverly Hills Cop. The role that Pinchot actually accepted, it was written to be a snobbish American named Jacques, and he was supposed to be kind of a stereotypically gay art assistant that would end up kind of annoying Axel Foley, and Foley would end up ridiculing him in some form or fashion. The casting director specifically wanted Pinchot to come in and audition because she saw him improvising as a background extra in 
the Flamingo Kid. So Pinchot was brought in, but he ended up waiting in Martin Brest's office for seemingly like about three hours waiting for Brest to be available to come and audition for him. So during that time, Pinchot had plenty of time to formulate what his performance was going to be, and he decided he was going to parody people of indistinguishable origin that were often found working in boutiques in Beverly Hills. So Pinchot specifically channeled this very rude Israeli makeup artist that had worked on him on his prior film called Hot Resort, he mimicked how she would pronounce things slightly garbled. By the time Brest arrived, Pinchot delivered an inspired comic performance. He called his character Serge. The name Serge was actually Pinchot's idea because he recalled this diva-esque Swiss caterer named Serge who always corrected people's pronunciation of his name, not Serge, it was Serge. Pinchot could improvise Serge through full conversations, Brest called Pinchot like some sort of, like an American version of Peter Sellers. He was on the floor laughing at this performance. While Brest was on the floor, he stayed on his knees and started begging Pinchot, saying he was not sure where he got this character, but Brest needed it for the movie. Pinchot was so taken aback by this director begging for him that he accepted the role. It did take several weeks for Pinchot to actually hear back Uh, Unfortunately, he ended up almost declining because he and his girlfriend were on the verge of a Florence vacation by the time they were asking him to come in. So Brest decided to bump up Pinchot's scenes immediately, and he took away lines from the scripted second art studio salesperson to give to Pinchot to improvise with Murphy for two days before his trip. Pinchot also appears as an usher in the music video for the Pointer Sisters soundtrack song called Neutron Dance. He does not appear as Serge. The producers preferred to keep his character a surprise for those who go see the film. Cynthia Sykes from TV St. Elsewhere was somebody that they had brought in to play Stallone's love interest later. It was recast because of Murphy's involvement to Lisa Eilbacher because Murphy was only 23 at the time, so they needed a little bit younger actress, and she would not be his lover. She would be a childhood friend as well called Jenny. James Russo was cast as Axel's other childhood friend named Michael Tandino in this part, originally meant to be Axel's brother. They decided to change it to uh, to best friend from childhood. Brest discovered Russo specifically from this NYU student film that he had seen a few years before, and he wanted an unknown actor, and he had him in mind. Not everything was smooth sailing during the film's production. Beverly Hills ordinances specifically made shooting in Beverly Hills very cumbersome. All of the crew and the equipment had to be off the streets by 10 p.m. So it left a very narrow window if they were trying to shoot scenes at night when it needed to be dark. Busy streets like Rodeo Drive could only be blocked off specifically on Sundays, and that meant filming on other days. They had to film among actual pedestrians and vehicles over those days, and Eddie Murphy being very recognizable, a lot of passersby would consistently stop during the scenes that they're trying to shoot because they recognized Murphy, shouting, hey, Eddie, as he was trying to act and stay in character. So it was it was difficult. So other changes that they had to make, uh, there was a scene that was in the script for Axel to go into the hotel kitchen where he's staying and grab a potato, and he would come out and stick it in Taggart and Rosewood's cop car tailpipe. But they didn't have the rights from the hotel to go back and shoot in the kitchen to show Axel taking that potato. So instead, they changed the scene so that Axel takes a banana from the complimentary buffet in the lobby. And it becomes one of the most famous scenes in the movie. The production received no cooperation at all from the real Beverly Hills Police Department. 
So the representation of the police station in Beverly Hills was mostly patterned not only as a very upscale version of the uh, real-life Detroit police precinct, but also the technology and kind of overall layout of the police department in Beverly Hills was developed specifically for what Brest had in mind for the NORAD scenes in War Games before he was fired. After all is said and done, the first screening of the completed Beverly Hills Cop film went over swimmingly with Paramount's top execs. They knew during this film that they had a surefire mega hit that was probably going to rival Ghostbusters' take at the box office. They immediately began talking about sequel possibilities. Beverly Hills Cop 1 was finally released into theaters, took the country of the United States and other parts of the world by storm. It became one of the most entertaining movies of its era. It features this perfect mix of action and comedy. It delivers laughs and thrills in equal measure. The casting all around is solid. The actor's director, Martin Brest, he keeps the tempo extremely loose and fun throughout. And the camaraderie that is felt among the performers behind the scenes shows every bit on the screen. Eddie Murphy, in particular, is a revelation. He brought this fantastic improvisational style, blending his street smarts with a core intelligence and a very good physical presence that is worth watching just simply for whatever he'll do next. The music in this film is also a highlight. They're bolstered by this killer soundtrack, this masterful synth score by Harold Faltermeyer. Beverly Hills Cop really has everything that you really want in an 80s action comedy. Great stunts, fun characters, inventive situations, infectious energy. It's a rare comedic action flick where laughs do not cease during the violent climax. A lot of comedies lose their flavor by the time we get to that, but Beverly Hills Cop keeps it up. It became the highest grossing R-rated film ever made up to that point. It wasn't eclipsed until almost 20 years later by The Matrix Reloaded. Amazingly, what the fact that Murphy was plugged in just two weeks before shooting is the most astonishing thing because it feels like a perfect vehicle for Eddie Murphy. Like, they couldn't have done it any better than they did. Brest wisely allowed Murphy to improvise while also keeping him focused on progressing the story, and Murphy delivered very well. Under those circumstances, it would set the trend for all of his future products to try to cater to Eddie Murphy's enormous appeal this film ended up changing the landscape of action movies of the 1980s by injecting much more comedy and music than you would find in previous cop films, like the hard-boiled ones you would find in the 1970s. 80s action films were very funny. A lot of buddy cop comedies would come into play as well. Mismatched cops became the norm. Often imitated, Beverly Hills Cop was never really adequately replicated by any other releases, even by its inevitable sequels. The reviews for Beverly Hills Cop at the time, they were generally good. They highlighted Murphy's performance specifically, as well as Breast's direction for overcoming the formula plot. Cop debuted at number one, and it remained there for over three months. It earned $235 million in the United States and another $130 million internationally during its initial theatrical run on a meager budget of $14 million, and that made it the most successful comedy ever made until 1990's Home Alone. Although the script went through 37 drafts from 11 different screenwriters before it finally hit the screen, and even the script was largely improvised to boot, most improbable, it gained a Best Original Screenplay Oscar nomination, if you can believe that, even though... A lot of the reason why the film works so well is because they did not adhere to the script. 
Beverly Hills Cop, this is a film I've seen so many times. I've probably seen it oh, maybe 30 to 40 times in my lifetime. It's hard for me to view it with an objective eye. It was a favorite of mine. As In my teenage years, I would watch this film incessantly. I would always go out and, <laughs> and re-rent it or I would watch it on cable. So I happen to have a special love for Beverly Hills Cop. I, re- I would recommend it to anybody who loves films of the 1980s. So that's why, even though objectively I know that it's not a four-star film in the way that most people would think of a four-star film, it's, it holds up to me. Even today, I'm still thoroughly entertained by Beverly Hills Cop, despite seeing it so many times. I could, I could repeat the dialogue. I know every beat. It still entertains me. It's very, very funny and fun to watch as it plays. So four stars out of four is what I give. Beverly Hills Cop. Most people wouldn't probably give it that high. Maybe it's in the three or three and a half range, but four stars. Still, I love it. And I I can't really give it less than that for something I've enjoyed this many times over the years, and I'm always transfixed by it. So I feel like it's a perfect film for, for people who are listening to this podcast, people who love films from the 1980s. So four stars out of four is what I give Beverly Hills Cop. Now, obviously, there were sequels that were made to Beverly Hills Cop. In fact, There was a a sequel to Beverly Hills Cop that was released in the 1980s that I'm going to do on this show. Even though the third film is from the 90s, I will do it on the 90s show. Beverly Hills Cop 2 from 1987, a film I do not have nearly as much love for as, not even close, as the first Beverly Hills Cop. And it'll be the first time I watch it in probably two decades. So I will try to keep an open mind. So check that out for the next episode of Beverly Hills Cop 2. If you have your own thoughts on Beverly Hills Cop that you want to impart, if you think that I'm way too generous for some reason or another, you think that uh, maybe it's too dated, it's comedy is is not uh, woke or PC enough probably for a lot of people today. That's that's likely true, especially some of Murphy's more uh, effeminate characterizations in this film. You can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram are also there. Quipster.net is where to go for all my contact information. I do recommend you write to me using the Gmail address that I have there, though, if you want to talk to me about anything. Until next time, thank you, everyone, for listening to this review and joining me as we travel around the world in 80s movies. Thank you.